Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Noman, Chief Content Officer of the Action Network. A very special podcast today. Later on in the show, we're going to bring in Danny Parkins, co-host of McNeil and Parkins, the afternoon show in Chicago on 670 The Score. He was also a co-host of You Better You Bet, uh, the betting-focused show on radio.com, which I appeared on during the NFL postseason. More importantly, Danny is doing one of the best things anyone with a platform can do, raising money on his own for victims of COVID, people who are out of work, people struggling to feed themselves, their families, recovering. Uh, It's ridiculously easy what he's doing. We should all be taking part. He also happens to be massive Chicago sports fans there. But first, this week, ESPN is launching its massive documentary series about Michael Jordan. My guest right now, Wright Thompson. ESPN's award-winning senior writer. Seven years ago, you wrote a story about Michael Jordan turning 50. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. It doesn't. You were my boss then. You weren't the chief content officer of the Action Network. So it's a long time ago. I was your boss then. And here's how good I was at being your boss and identifying stories back then. Your story came in late in the close cycle of a magazine, and we had no idea when it was coming in. We had no idea if it was going to be any good. So we had budgeted two pages for the story. And we figured, like, if it came in, like, at the last second, we'd try to cobble together, you know, something that could be sort of an excerpt of what was going to run on ESPN.com. The story came in, I think, on, like, a Thursday or Friday, maybe maybe on a, on a Wednesday. We closed the magazine on a Friday. And Rob King, who was my boss, sent me the story and said, you got to run this whole thing. And I was like, pissing and moaning, and I was irritated. And I'm like, I don't want to run this whole whole thing. We got to find 10 pages. It's not easy to find 10 pages in a magazine. And then I read the story and I was like, fuck, we got to run this whole thing. <laughs> I love to do that to you. That was, that's the best part for me still is fucking you yeah. over. Like, like, yeah, that's way better than the accolades, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that story ended up getting nominated for a national magazine award. Yeah. And we were all, we all thought I was going to win. So a bunch of people came to a victory party and then I lost and had to go to the victory. You were there. That was hilarious. Oh, yeah. You lost, and I will tell you that it was, it was like a very sort of Algonquin-type roundtable of superstar writers of that era, which continues to be this era. But you were there. Chris Jones, who's won National Magazine Awards, has, was there. I think uh, Seth Wickersham was there. But there was also like, and I won't name him, one douchey writer who was super precious and self-important, who, while we're all sort of going around toasting, we were at PJ Clark's, and it was a late, ugly night. We were at PJ Clark's on like 54th and 3rd in Manhattan. And uh, this guy raises his glass and toasts Gary Smith, like (laughs) who I love. And Gary Smith is amazing. But like, really, we're going to toast Gary Smith, who works at a different magazine, who is a writer who's 20 years older than all of us and has nothing to do with the event. (laughs) If you want like real funny, like, so the next night, was the James Beard Awards and my friend John Currents was thought he was going to win the cookbook award. And so I went with him that night to the dinner and I was just like, you know, plus one. Like I went and started drinking early and uh his award went first. He lost and he I thought he was gonna win. So we were both losers. So we both really got into it. And then I realized at some point that they were gonna give an award to Eli Saslow, who's my good friend, you know Eli, and uh wrote for us for a long time. And uh, he was going to win an award and I knew that he wasn't there. So I texted him and I'm like, 
Eli, I'm going to go get your award. And he was laughing and was like, sure, go for it. So there were people from the Washington Post there. They called his name, you know, and they're getting ready to go get it. But I was closer to the stage. I went up. Martha Stewart's there. You know, I get Eli's medal and give a speech in which I say, you know, it's just really an honor to even be nominated for the same award as the great John Currents and waved at him in my table. And we're ripped shit. Like, yeah, no, that happened. That was the next night. You've never told me that story. And then I wore the medal all over New York City. I'd go into, we went into Gramercy Park Tavern. They're like, how you doing, chef? You know, I'm wearing a James Beard medal. Like, I want it. Oh, my God, that is classic. How did you get Michael Jordan to agree to do this story? I asked him for a long time. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but, like, I started 18 months before. I remember sort of when I thought it got serious was, like, a year before I, before I sat down with him. I was in Scotland with Tim Horgan doing those videos for the, when we used to broadcast the open championship. So I was in a car on the phone with Jordan's people and I did that call and I hung up and I was like, well, that's, that's the end of that. That's never going to happen. And then, uh, I don't know, it worked out. Things work out because I don't know if you remember this, but we were doing the one day, one game issue. Uh, and it was LSU, Alabama at LSU. And I had a really good relationship with all of those people so I was sort of the point person for us with LSU and was writing that story on Les for the issue, Les Miles. And Jordan called and asked if I could be in Charlotte that like that Saturday. And I was like, I can't like I'm in Baton Rouge. And, you know, a lot of people are can't, like, I can't miss this. And so I said no. And then I thought that was really it. So when they came back around, I was surprised and excited. And it turned out to make this it made the story because it was just random luck that I was with him the day after he moved away from Chicago. So many of those things come from rushing back, right? Like, hey, I totally remember the LSU Alabama one day, one game, because it's still the single greatest sporting event I've ever been to. In fact, I'm recording this in my office in West Hartford, and I can see the credential for the LSU Alabama one day, one game hanging on my wall. Number one, number two, the Jordan story, like, I can't wait for this documentary. And I've heard it's amazing. I've heard, like, it's just rip-roaring awesome and full of candy. And if you are someone who grew up loving Jordan, and the thing about him was his competitiveness, right? Like, more than anything, what I loved about him was his pure drive and, like, the way he balanced being competitive with also seeming to be, while he was playing, a lovable, handsome, adorable guy. And, of course, in the story, he seems miserable, like a really miserable dude. And throughout his career, after the, after the NBA, he has more and more seemed like a dude who was really kind of bitter and full of rage. And that's what you captured in the story. And that's not what he was like when he was playing. It's interesting, too, the degree to which that he has moved through the stages of grief on all that. I mean, I went back to see him a couple of years later for that Tiger Woods story that you and I did. And you could tell that like some stuff was getting put to bed then. And, you know, I imagine that I feel like the fact that this documentary exists is a step on the way to to self-awareness and realization. Like, I don't know. I mean, he's a guy like any of us working out his stuff. The quote that really hit home for me, and it's the second thing he says in the story. I reread the story over the weekend. Second thing he says in the story, it's especially resonant now. He says, I always thought I'd die young. This is on the eve of his 50th birthday. And I immediately thought of Kobe. And I feel like in this space, since Kobe was killed in that helicopter crash, 
Kobe, the way he was perceived during his career was nothing like Jordan. Like he was perceived as sort of uber competitive, but also kind of mean about it. Whereas Jordan was perceived as uber competitive. He was mean, but outside of the court, he seemed like someone, you know, he was be like Mike, right? There was nobody who was trying to be like Kobe. And after his career, Kobe found a way to connect with people and become warm and be real. And people started to appreciate his approach to perfection in a way that Jordan was never able to do. And that to me, all of a sudden, then Jordan is giving the eulogy. And I think that's what made sort of his eulogy in the moment when he sort of helped Vanessa Bryant off the stage so much more poignant because it showed a side of him that people had not been able to see for 20 years. Well, and also, I mean, there is a entire other sort of story to be done bookended by speeches. You know, the Hall of Fame speech and then his eulogy for Kobe. And if you just watch those back to back, you can watch someone deal with the cost of being themselves. Like that is a different person on stage at the Staples Center than it was at the Hall of Fame induction. I mean, like, I, it's a really interesting thing. When we get off the phone, go watch those things back to back because that's not the same guy. Really interesting to watch those things consecutively. Well, I thought it was interesting in the story. You know, you wrote about the speech and a lot of sort of the bitterness and rage that people took away from that speech. The people closest to him didn't think that's who he was at all. Like they thought, oh, that's just Michael sort of in a caustic Michael way talking about his career. Well, the problem is that he, Michael is one of those people who likes to dish it but can take it. And so if every one of those people he banged on in that speech had sort of chirped back at him, he would have thought it was funny. It just, the cameras were only pointed at him. And so, you know, it was interesting because it was an unbelievably authentic moment, but because of the nature of it, it, you were never allowed to see sort of what would be happening if there wasn't a ballroom and a microphone and a podium and a bunch of cameras. How did you figure that out when you were reporting the story? Did you... Did he rip you and did just, you ever rip him back? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. No, I mean, we just sat around and watching, watching sports and he was like, we were just talking about sports like people do. I mean, it was interesting. Like it, it quickly sort of wore off that he was Michael Jordan. You know, I mean, I that know. happens. You've done it. Yeah, but it's Michael Jordan. It's different. Yeah, but, yeah, but it, you know what? I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, it, it, I don't know. I was there with a notebook. I was there doing a thing. It really... You know, I mean, I was really focused. It, it sort of, the fact that it was Michael Jordan wore off very quickly. And the most resonant idea was I cannot get back on this airplane having shit the bed on this. It wouldn't matter to me because I only had two pages to fill anyways. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> so, we, could, we, could, we, we, could get, we could we could get a shirtless University of Miami receiver. You could have filled both of them that way. <laughs> that was more Belsky reckon? than you. That, that was a classic Belsky move. But yes, that was that, less you. Yeah, sure. You're referring to Gary Belsky, who was my predecessor. This is what stuck out to me in that story. They are all things that made him amazing when he played, right? Because they filled that sort of competitive spirit. He would spit on cinnamon rolls that his chef baked before anyone <laughs> on, his, on his team, like his retinue that supported him, could eat them if they came out while he was shooting a commercial. He would rip up and throw out clothes of his friends if he saw them wearing anything that wasn't Nike. Like, how are those two things okay? Where do those two things come from? Well, I mean, it, it's like, 
one, I think he thinks they're funny. And two, I think that, well, it's interesting. I mean, I think they're probably come from different places, even though they feel like examples of the same thing. I mean, the Nike thing is, don't you know who pays for all of our salaries? And I think the cinnamon roll thing is those guys just killed each other constantly. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, he, like I wrote this in the story. It's true. He can be a breathtaking asshole, you know? And I think some of that is wearing off. I mean, you know, you have to learn how you move through the world and the effect you have on people. Cause sometimes there are things that other people sense that you don't. He's very clearly a guy who is doing real work, figuring out what it means to have been Michael Jordan. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it totally makes sense. Like you have to figure out who you are when you, what you were is over. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, who are you now? You know, I've been reading a lot of Mickey Mantle books during all of this. I just went down a Mickey Mantle rabbit hole and, you know, Mickey Mantle thought he was going to die young too. And it affected so many of his choices and ultimately it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what's interesting is that, you know, there could have been a self fulfilling prophecy about Michael that he has spent the last 20 years turning on his, on its head. And that's interesting too. I mean, the crying Jordan meme is huge for him. In what way? I mean, in that it softens him in a way that he needed to be soft. I wrote about this in the story, but the reason people were so pissed off at the hall of fame speech, I think is that they wanted a nostalgic Jordan. That's why you wait five years before you can be inducted into the Hall of Fame so that the person you used to be is over and now you're contemplating the future and the past and and you have some understanding of what this experience meant. And standing on that podium at the Hall of Fame, his experience wasn't over yet. He wasn't done being Michael Jordan. And I feel like the crying Jordan meme is a softening thing in a way, if that makes sense. Do you know what story and anecdote I was really excited to reread that I had sort of forgotten about. And then when I was getting into it, him looking for his rings, tell people the process oh. of that and unpack it. Cause I think there's like three layers of things there. Well, I mean, he was moving out of his house in Chicago. So he's packing up his memories. He has a safe with his rings in it. First of all, he couldn't remember the combination to the safe. So uh, he's sitting there with some people who work for him trying to guess, you know, combinations of his numbers. Is it 23, 645? Is it, you know what I mean? Like, what, like, what is my combination? He finally gets it open and there's a ring missing. So he tears the whole house apart and they finally find it. And, you know, going through his stuff, he finds a letter that he had sent his parents when he was in college in which he asked them to send him stamps. And that really sort of hit him because been a long time since he needed a stamp, much less needed someone to pay for one. And I think it was just a reminder that, you know, that Mike Wilmington, that Mike Jordan from Wilmington, North Carolina is dead and Michael Jordan killed. See, you know what I remember about that story? That he's still so freaking clutch because he he had 10 chances to get (laughs) that combination right. And he got it on the the ninth or 10th one, maybe the 10th one. He got it on the 10th one. Look, you man, you you can't teach that. I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna let Steve Kerr enter that combination. <laughs> he's not he's not gonna give that combination to, to like someone else for chance. Like Scotty Pippen, get the fuck away from my safe. What are you doing? But that's also like he also had a quote in there that I thought was amazing. And this is where he never would have thought about this, I think, when he was thirty years old and going through sort of his title run which is that uh, winning, like 
at that level, that's a special power. And trying to get it back after playing and that like, if he could, then he could breathe again. Like that's how much of a part that competitiveness and that need to be better than anybody else was within him. Well, and, and it's still there. I mean, he's really good at, at Sudoku. He, you know, he's really good at that iPad game bejeweled. I mean, it, you don't turn it off. You just find less and less culturally important venues with which to display it, right? I mean, he's still the same guy on some level, and that's interesting. You and I are both going to be terrible retired people. We think we're going to be awesome at it, but we're actually going to be terrible at it. I mean, it's interesting to think about. Well, look, quarantine is a little bit of a challenge, right? Because it's different for you. Oh, my God. You work at home, and so, but you can't go out. You can't report your stories. Like, I'm used to going somewhere every day, and this is, like, a very weird thing because there are days where I go to my office at, say, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, and I'm not coming down until, say, 5 or 6, and my Stacy, who you know well, will be like, what are you doing up there? I'm like, I, I don't know. I was on calls. I tried to create. I, I have a post-it next to my computer that just says create, but, like, I don't know what I'm doing every day. That's funny. I have a post-it next to my computer that says, say no to conferences. <laughs> like It's hard. Basically, my thing is, if you're not paying, I'm not going because Sonia's going to kill me if I take another trip that isn't absolutely required to report a store. And yet somehow you continue to find trips that are not required all I know. I know. Like, I really trying to be better at it. It's not going great. <laughs> you know, I thought, I thought one of the most interesting things, get Jordan as a gambler was a touchstone topic for people throughout his career, right? And there was that rumor forever that he actually left the NBA because he was knee deep in gambling debt or whatever it was. And Stern kicked him out because of his gambling habits. And he'd be in Atlantic City before big games and things like that, right? And Phil Jackson gave him a gambling book. Like when Jackson was a coach, he famously gave everybody books. Phil Jackson gave him a gambling book. Did you talk to Jordan about what that book was and any of that sort of habit that he had? It's interesting. I mean, I don't think so because I think it would have been in the story. I don't, I'm trying to remember. It's funny because uh, I have the notes out because I'm going through them uh, as we try to figure out. I've been assigned a Jordan story to come out during the run of this dot. And so I'm trying to figure out sort of what to do. And so I've just been reading through stuff. So I'll let you know when I finish. I sort of think that, I think the gambling is exactly like the Sudoku or the Bejeweled, or, you know, I just think he needed something to do to occupy his mind. Like you have that much money. I mean, it's sort of like Charles Barkley, you know, he's losing a bunch of money, but he has a bunch of money. You know, it's interesting. I have a friend who's in a rock and roll band and he was describing how hard it is when they get off a tour that about 9:30 every night his adrenaline spikes and then of course it crashes because there's no outlet for it and he's like his body is physiologically trained for the adulation. I mean, I was at a concert one time and the crowd was going crazy and I texted him and I'm like, "Hey man, I'm at this show, people are going nuts. What's it like?" I'll never forget Greg wrote back. He's like, "Man, it's like kissing God." He's like, it's, you can't imagine what it's like. And so uh, I think it's hard for people to understand how you replace the, even like the physiological response your body gets when you were Michael Jordan, right? I mean, I can't, I would love to see test results. When I worked at the Times Picayune in New Orleans, one of my favorite things that the sports editors did was 
during the Sugar Bowl, they hooked up heart monitors to the mothers of the punt returners. And it was crazy. Like, it was exactly what you think it would be. But just looking at the data was fascinating because they spiked. And so, like, I don't know. I feel like all of those things are related, if that makes sense. Well, I feel like that's what I'm going to feel like when I'm watching the documentary because it's also going to be... Dude, oh, yeah. I'm going to watch every second of this thing. I'm jacked. <laughs> I am going to watch every second of this thing. I'm going to make Owen, also who you know, my younger son, I'm going to make him watch oh, yeah. every second of this thing. Like All he does is play 2K, and all he does is pretend to be the Bulls, and sometimes classic Bulls. Like He'll put together like Bill Cartwright, who you had a great anecdote about call, like Jordan ripping Bill Cartwright and calling him Medical Bill when he joined the Bulls. Like He'll be Cartwright, yeah. Pippen, Jordan, Bob Love, and Jerry Sloan. Like, like oh, This is a, oh, going to be an event. I cannot wait for this thing. I'm going to watch every second of it. And like, I like the fact that it is 1998. I want to get lost in it. Like, that's the thing I'm excited about is to remember what that was like. I went back and listened to that music, you know, the intro music. Yeah. And I forgot. I was, I was on the phone with Pat Riley a couple of days ago and he was talking about, he's like, God, that damn music. And he was saying that like, the minute you heard it, you knew there was about to be a war. I was just curious, like, what was it like to hear those first notes and be like, oh, shit, this is for real. Like, I can imagine an NBA rookie in 1998 showing up at the United Center, standing there for the national anthem, and they play that music and that video on the big jumbotron, and it suddenly hits you like, oh, okay, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, that's Michael Jordan, and he's going to cut my heart out. I think that one of the things that's been forgotten about Michael is just that, like how good they really were. So it's going to be really cool for people who didn't experience that to get to see it. And for people like us who maybe don't remember to go back and be like, oh, wow. Well, that's your story. Go write about the Alan Parsons project and the opening riff of that song. Oh, I've already, I've, I've already, I've already emailed Alan Parsons. Don't worry. I'm, I'm casting a wide net. It's like when uh, Seth Wickersham wrote about We Are the Champions and he went out to England and interviewed the guy from Queen who wrote the song. Oh, yeah. There was something funny that happened with that. Now I don't remember. Well, he uh, was a rock scientist for one. Oh, that's right. And then he made his own guitars. That was a really good story. We're talking about Seth Wickersham, who uh, uh, is one of both Chad and I's dear friends who writes for ESPN Magazine and uh, or writes for ESPN. God, isn't that weird? Yeah, that was a little weird. Well, listen, right. This, this story was written so long ago that at the end, in your little bio, it, it listed your Twitter account, which I very clearly remember you don't have anymore. Well, that's because I, uh, uh, I, I remember a phone call from you. You were like, did you threaten to beat someone up on Twitter? And I said, yes. And you said, why? And, I, and then it devolved from there. So I'm no longer <laughs> on Twitter. No, but that is a verbatim. It was, I mean, I remember that very clearly. Yeah, I remember that too. It just wasn't, you know what? It's not your medium. There's other ways for you to express yourself. No, and I, I, have, a, I have a temper and I also just like to poke the bear and those are bad combinations on Twitter. All right, right. You got to go record another podcast. I got to go do other work. I'm not sure what it is, but I got to figure it out. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone should go read the story. It's so easy. You type in Wright Thompson, Michael Jordan, and this story comes up immediately. Easily the seminal story about Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan at 50. It's unbelievable. Thanks, Chad. This was, this was a pleasure. Let's do this more often. I miss you. I miss you too, buddy. I'll talk to you later.
All right, let's bring in Danny Parkins, co-host of the McNeil and Parkins Show, heard in the afternoons on 670 The Score in Chicago. Uh, for the record, Danny and I originally tried to do this interview on video, so there is a lot of back and forth about that he's growing a ridiculously bad quarantine beard, but here we go. Man, you have cleaned up for me. Yeah, I have, I have cleaned up for you. I, I decided to shower for Chad Millman, but I promise... Uh, I will not shave for anyone. My friends are like, why is your wife allowing this to happen? I, I think she just likes a little variety, frankly. I think she's just like kind of enjoying looking at a new man, even if it is uh, a lesser man. I've always wanted to see if I actually am the least qualified person in America to grow facial hair. It's horrifying is the only word for it. I sent a screenshot of it to my buddies and they said that I have stray hairs on my face that are practicing social distancing. And that was one of the kinder comments. Well, listen, I feel like you have the job I wish I knew I always wanted, which was you get to live in our hometown of Chicago. You host the afternoon drive on 670 The Score. You were a co-host of You Better You Bet on Radio.com, which I did during the NFL postseason with you. All you have to do is talk about Chicago sports, which normally is the ultimate gift. I feel like I should be living your life 15 years ago. It's, it's awesome, man. It, it's my dream job. It's all I've ever really wanted to do. Like, I'm sure if I found some homework from kindergarten and it was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? The answer would have been, you know, shooting guard for the Bulls. So, like, six one Jewish skinny white guy with scoliosis, like, that wasn't going to happen. So uh, this is the only somewhat realistic uh, dream job I ever had. And uh, I'm literally living a dream as corny as that is. And uh, yeah, I mean, if I could like change anything, maybe I'd be born like 20 years earlier so I could have like the true heyday of, uh, of radio pay. Uh, but <laughs> It's still pretty damn good, don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining, but uh, I work with Dan McNeil, who uh, was like an original member of the score. And so when he tells me the stories of uh, the glory years and bonuses that he paid for the entire show to go to Hawaii and things like that, I'm like, that sounds really nice. But uh, no, nah, it's, uh, it's, it's a dream job, and I, I wouldn't change anything about it. If you were older like me, you would have wanted to be the 6'1 shooting guard for the DePaul Blue Demons, which is what I wanted to be. And one year I went to a basketball camp and it was a like local, it was a camp in Wisconsin for basketball where it was run by the high school coaches at Highland Park High School, where I went to high school. And we had an all-star game against the DePaul Blue Demon camp with Joey Meyer and Ray Meyer. And at the game, I sunk two free throws late in the game with the entire crowd screaming at me. And I ran back for defense and I looked to my right and Ray Meyer and Joey Meyer were just sitting there with their arms crossed, nodding. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be the three-point shooter at DePaul. I was convinced. Those memories are, uh, they are what shape us. I am told that there was a time when college sports mattered in Chicago and yeah. DePaul spearheading that effort. I love college sports, so I wish that was more of a thing. Uh, I joke on the show that I take off the Friday of every, the opening Friday of every NCAA tournament because Chicago doesn't deserve to have me doing afternoons. Like if I was doing morning, <laughs> if I was doing mornings, it wouldn't be a problem because I could just do the show and then go to the bar and start drinking Moscow mules at 11 a.m. when the games start. But like I'm doing afternoons and giving score updates to a city that like based on the ratings just doesn't really care about college sports. So uh, 
that's like the only thing about the Chicago sports landscape that I don't love is that DePaul, Northwestern, Illinois, like none of them have been able to be consistently good enough for long enough or recently enough to uh, have any sort of like rabid following here. Well, look, that's what made Loyola's run so special, right? Is like it, it brought the city together and reminded people like of those glory days in the 70s when DePaul and Loyola were really strong college basketball programs. And people were super excited to see a local city team that's a commuter school that has kids from Chicago that go there actually making a run. It was fantastic. That was great radio for you. It was. It was amazing. And everything about it. I mean, Porter Mosier and Sister Jean and the upsets and like everything about it was great. But then like a week after it was completely over and then the next year they no showed and it went away. Like, so you're right. Like, it shows that a story can still captivate the city, but it's temporary. If Loyola went on a 10 year run, like that would be incredible. Like if they did what uh, Greg Marshall in Wichita State was able right. to do. Right. If they if like we got a Gonzaga level program, which feels like should be possible, given the amount of talent that comes out of the city. So um, that's what's frustrating. I, I would absolutely love if my radio audience cared uh, about college basketball, but it just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. So what would you say is your current state of mind? Because I've been loving your commentary generally and on Twitter in the, the COVID-19 crisis. Oh, man. How much time do you have? What is my current state of mind? Well... I'll go personal and then global. Personally, I am just very thankful that I am healthy, uh, my immediate circle is healthy, and that we are economically stable with income and health insurance. And I had uh, my first child, my first son in uh, January, and he came eight weeks early, and so he was in the, the NICU for 27 days. And so it's been amazing to be home with him for everything. And he's doing well, but, you know, he's a little baby. He's immunocompromised for a while. And so, like, we, we have to be very vigilant about making sure that he doesn't get uh, any virus, much less this one that we know so little about still. So in the, my, my immediate circle, very thankful that me and my family are healthy and economically stable. On a global macro level, I think it's um, shown – very clearly and very dangerously the problem with us as a society not agreeing to one set of facts and then disagreeing about what to do with those facts like that's what our political system and the economy and everything has been based on for forever right like we have a problem with drugs let's figure out what to do with it the war on drugs happens failed policy but everybody agreed that there was a problem with drugs. Now what's happened is that no one agrees on a set of facts anymore. So you can just choose your own fact and then there's an audience of people that will go to that level of confirmation bias to make themselves feel better about themselves. And it's just, it's really, really, really dangerous because Breitbart isn't the same as the Washington Post, right? A Facebook meme isn't the same as a epidemiologist, right? Like so, and that's 
that's the problem as I see it. And this is just, it's not like this is the first issue that has highlighted that problem. We've seen this for years and years now in varying degrees, but like this is the one that has life and death consequences. And so it's, it's pretty scary. And I don't know if this, if you wanted to get this deep, but like, I don't know how we put this genie back in the bottle. Like, how do we solve the problem of whole countries getting their, like, the Facebook is synonymous with the internet in plenty of countries. So if there's disinformation there, and that's the only information you have, then civil war happens, which is like a thing that's happened in some third world countries. Like, I, I just don't know how we go back to agreeing on a set of facts and then disagreeing policy-wise on what to do with those facts. I, it, it seems to me right now like an unsolvable problem. Well, it is right now unsolvable, but these things to me have always been cyclical, right? Like there are, there are examples of stuff like this throughout the history of time. Woodrow Wilson in 1916, when he was running for president, there had been attacks by the German military <clears throat> within the United States for more than a year before he would admit that there was a secret service of German military that was working on these kind of attacks because he was running for re-election re and wanted to be the guy who kept us out of war. So even while the New York Times is trumpeting all of these attacks and these explosions that are killing people, Woodrow Wilson is saying, nope, there's nothing to see here, nothing happening, nothing happening. And it wasn't until he was forced because of other political means in 1917 to go to war. So it's like we see these things over the course of history and we think every single one of these is something that can't be overcome. And yet it's overcome because someone else becomes in charge, because the conversation changes, because there is such a tilt in terms of the conversation from one side to the other, that it naturally has to pull back. That's my optimistic view. Yeah, I mean, or you can make the argument that 103 years later, it's just history repeating itself with a bunch of examples in the middle. Um, yeah, but I, listen, I, I appreciate the historical context and, and what, you're, what you're saying. Um, there's certainly more means of information now, right? Like we, we know about... Um, like thought bubbles and how people only get things that confirm their worldview based on like Google tracking and who they follow on the internet and all those sort of things. So it, it seems like a tougher problem to, uh, to solve in 2020 with technology and just like with the willful misrepresentation of stuff. But hopefully you're right. Like ho hopefully there is a problem. There's a solution to the problem that I am not seeing because there are many, many, many people smarter than me who hopefully will be involved You are doing something tremendously positive and optimistic during this. Explain to people what you're doing to raise money. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, stole the idea from Shay Serrano, who I've never met, never talked to, never has responded to any of my tweets, but I'm just a fan, and the dude is pretty inspiring. And I've been thinking about it for a while and figured this was a pretty good opportunity to do it. I looked at my Venmo account, and I had like $345 or $354, whatever it was, uh, that I hadn't done anything with or transferred to my bank account. And I was like, ah, that's an amount of money that I can afford to donate right now. And so I said, hey, if you have some money to spare, people are going to need it. I'll find the people who need it, spend it to my Venmo, Danny-Parkins. I'll donate this amount. If you need it, shoot me a DM 
and I'll try to get you some money. Tell me your story, and I'll post your Venmo. So hopefully, once I make a donation of whatever it is, 50 bucks, 300 bucks, anywhere in between, other people will pile on and see your story that you sent me, and we can kind of like crowdsource this thing. And uh, my Venmo weekly sending limit is 3,000 bucks, and for four consecutive uh, Mondays, we've hit the weekly limit in one day. So did 12,000 bucks so far since this uh, pandemic has started, and next Monday I hope to do uh, 3,000 more and just... I said I would do it until opening day of baseball. So if that is sustainable and people keep sending me money, I'll, I'll keep sending it out. It's one of the rare instances we're seeing of purposeful frustration on Twitter. We're clearly like everything you just talked about is something you're feeling and trying to express and you're using it in a positive way in a space where there is not often a plethora of positivity. Yeah, you know, I uh, I'm a millennial. I you know I had Facebook my freshman year of college, right? And um, I am still a believer in the internet and like the the net positive of social media. I, I or at least I, I want to believe that. And so I'm trying to maybe like that's like the hill I'm willing to die on as it becomes tougher and tougher to make that argument because of what I was talking about three or four minutes ago. So I do still have some sort of like a idealistic view of like what this can all be on some level. I guess the least I could do is do nothing, but it's pretty close to the least I could do. I, I lay there with my newborn son laying on my chest and I respond to people on Twitter and send them a small amount of money that other people have sent me. I'm not, it's, not, it's not some sort of incredible accomplishment, but uh, it makes me feel slightly less miserable about what's happening in the world and it seems to be helping a lot of people. All right, speaking of idealistic, my last question for you. The Bulls are getting new executive leadership. The Bears have a new quarterback. The Cubs haven't really done anything. If you're a betting man, which I know you are, which Chicago team is the next Chicago team to win a title? I think the majority of my audience would say the White Sox because they're just, their window is just opening. Like they are hoping that this season is like akin to the Cubs 2015 season where they arrived earlier than most and they won 97 games and started their run of three straight NLCSs. Most baseball rebuilds, most rebuilds in sports period don't end in a championship and the White Sox revenues, like their their margin for error is just smaller than the Cubs who can like spend around some problems. I still think the smart money is against the, the White Sox winning a championship, though I love a lot of the things that they're doing, and they're going to be really fun and exciting for a long time. I think it's the Bears, um, frankly, because I really still believe in Matt Nagy, and I think that the foundation is in place for this defense to be good for a few years, and I know that that offensive system works and can win a Super Bowl. We saw it this past year with the Chiefs. We saw it a couple of years ago with the Eagles. So all you need is mediocre quarterback play with this defense to be a legitimate Super Bowl contender. And I think that they'll be an elite defense for at least another two or three years, assuming some health to Khalil Mack. But Roquan Smith looks like a star. Eddie Jackson looks like a star. Like even after Akeem Hicks drops off, like I still think the makings are there or the foundation there for a really good defense. And I believe in the offensive system and the coach. So I know it's a big just, but like if they can just get above average quarterback play, 
I think the Bears will be one of the toughest outs in the league. So that puts their chances the next like two or three years, and I think better than any Chicago teams win a championship. So I will be cautiously optimistic and say the Bears. That would be better for Chicago than anything other than Loyola or DePaul winning a title. No, I, trust me, I would take a Bears Super Bowl over 10 straight Loyola Final Fours. Um, while that would be a lot of fun for the gambler in me and the college fan in me, I will be a college fan and gamble uh, regardless. There, there is nothing that makes Chicago happier and unifies the city more. Like Maybe like a deep dish pizza or a Chicago-style hot dog debate, but honestly, like there's nothing better for this city than a great Bears team. So... No, I will. I will be rooting for the Bears to be that next Super Bowl champ or that next title holder in the city. As a former hot dog vendor in Highland Park, uh, I can tell you I have many, many opinions about deep dish versus hot dogs. We'll save them for next time. Yeah, it's listen. It, it's all good. The, your hair game. It's just you're rocking the salt and pepper, <laughs> rocking the scruff. You should be on television somewhere. Like they put me on television, and I, I don't know what these executives are thinking, but. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate you calling me. Thank you, brothers. Good catching up. This has been the favorites from the Action Network. Download from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, love you.